Good morning, everyone. Good to technically see you, sort of, but it's good to be back together again on the Lord's Day. I want to welcome those of you who are just joining us. Maybe someone from the church reached out and invited you to be a part, and we truly hope that this will be a, a meaningful experience for you and that will bring you closer to God, and you'll either continue or begin to study the Bible along with us. As we're experiencing this pandemic of the coronavirus, we're, we're actually uh, looking at a short series called Psalms for such a time as this. And so we've been going through various Psalms in the New Testament as we think through uh, what it looks like to be a Christian in a pandemic. So this, this morning, uh, I'd like to share a Psalm on unity. It's Psalm 133. So if you have a Bible, if you want to get your Bible and turn to Psalm 133. And while you're thinking about that for a moment, I want you to, to think about this statement. I personally believe that a pandemic is a petri dish for discord and disunity. It's not the pandemic itself. It's the experience of this disruption that seems to be just a breeding ground for disunity. People have strong opinions about what to do. And so these, these various opinions differ, first of all, personally. You know, I don't want to wear a mask, you wear a mask. Politically, oh my word, the, the, the nation is so divided during this pandemic. And even among Christians in the church, there's, there's division. In fact, it really struck me that this very um, past week, my daughter was up in Newtown in a market and people were standing in line. A guy came in who didn't have a mask on. Someone of all the rest who had masks on said, hey, you should, you should have a mask on. Next thing you know, the two of them are in a fist fight in the market. So I think it, it certainly is important for us as Christians to consider that during this pandemic, we need to hear a word from the Lord about unity. And so if you'll look with me in Psalm 133, uh, just before I read this psalm, I want to say a few background thoughts. Remember, this series of psalms from 120 up into the 30s is what we call the songs or psalms of ascent. And we know from history that that Christian or um, Jewish pilgrims who were coming from the various outer lands, what we call the diaspora, those who weren't living in the Holy Land, as they would come back to Israel to celebrate the feasts, they would sing these psalms together. And not all of the psalms were written at that time, but they were compiled into this series of psalms. And so Psalm 133 is actually a psalm that was written by David. And it's really interesting because as you try to get the historical background, what caused David to write a psalm about unity? It's been suggested that perhaps what he had in mind here, and again, this, this can't be proven, but it makes a lot of sense, is that there were a couple experiences in David's life where he watched the people of God come together. It was rather new in David's time for the Jewish people to have a king. They had only had one king prior to David. For 400 years, they'd kind of had judges and, and it was kind of spread out. But, but perhaps when David moved the ark to Jerusalem, there were large crowds of, of Jews from the various tribes who came together, or maybe at his coronation. 
But it seemed like David was, was beholding a large crowd of the people of God coming together. And he was led by the Spirit of God to write a psalm that sort of celebrated the beauty and the blessing of unity. And so if you'll look with me in Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3, some of you are already pretty excited because you're going, wow, Pastor Tom's only preaching on three verses. I'll be able to still... Uh, get out for my morning walk. Now let's, let's not get overly excited here. This is a great psalm and we're gonna dig into the concept of unity. What I want you to think about here is that David's psalm is not saying everything there is to say about unity. I think what this psalm is celebrating is the goodness and beauty of unity. So let's read Psalm 133 in verses one through three as it comes up on the screen. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edges of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What I want to do is take a few moments to comment on this psalm, and then we'll move from that into a more in-depth discussion of unity, in which we're going to answer three questions. We're going to talk about the benefits of unity, the causes of disunity, and the ways to promote unity. But let's just, let's start in this text and, and just kind of ponder. First of all, he begins with the phrase behold. In other words, this is worthy of stopping for a moment and looking at something. Hey, wait a minute, hey, take a look at this. And so he calls our attention. He says, what I'm about to point out to you, this unity among brethren, he says is, is, is two things, it's good and pleasant. You know, it's interesting, some things in life are good, but they're not really pleasant. It's probably good to get your teeth cleaned at the dentist. It's good to eat certain foods, but they might not all be pleasant. On the other hand, there are some things that are pleasant, but they may not necessarily be good. In fact, the Bible speaks in Hebrews 11 of the passing pleasures of sin, but when something is both good and pleasant, that's worth stopping and looking at. Well, what is it that's so good and pleasant? He says, it's good and pleasant for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now, it's interesting when you think about this because for the most part, it's not all that big of a deal for people to spend some time together in unity. But it's very different for them to dwell together to kind of live out the grind of life. In fact, the familiar adage, fish and relative stink after three days. So, so we can sort of put on a facade of unity if it's, a, if it's a short-lived thing where we could say, you know, they're driving me crazy, but it's only for a couple days. But this idea of this ongoing interaction in, in a way that we're living together in unity, that's something worth standing up and paying attention to. In fact, I, I want to suggest here that perhaps the family is the place in which we, we first learn about 
the necessity and beauty of unity. So then David, led by the Spirit, says, let me give you two similes to, to, to kind of go, let me tell you how good it is. Let me tell you how precious unity is. The first simile is from the use of oil, and the second one is from the use of dew. You'll notice similes usually use the phrase, it is like, verse two, it is like, verse three, it is like. So let's briefly talk about these two similes. The simile of oil here, there's a little bit of historical background that's worth thinking about when he says it is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edges of his robes. Something that I wanted to point out here is that this oil is not just a flask or some container of olive oil. This was a very special oil. It was an oil that God had prescribed that was made up was a very expensive uh, plants and spices, and it was to only be used on the high priest. And it was obviously symbolic. God said when Aaron began his high priesthood that they should pour this oil upon his head. And so as soon as this oil was poured out, I'm sure that the room was filled with this wonderful fragrance of this oil. And perhaps that's one of the things that we're to think about here, that, that oil is fragrant. And normally fragrances that are, are good are pleasing to us. But you'll notice that this oil, this fragrant oil is, is descending. You'll notice that it's coming down. And so David stops and he says, you know, think about how unity is like something that just descends down. It's, 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 it's interesting when you think about it. Can't say for sure, but one of the things that promotes unity is that when people are willing to, to stoop down and, and, and kind of extend love and humility and service to others. So David, led by the Spirit of God, sees unity as something that is a fragrant diffusing that runs down. And, and, and then it says it comes down upon the edges of his robes. Now, it's, it's hard to say here because it's unlikely that they poured so much oil that by the time Aaron was done, he was completely drenched. He was covered from head to toe in oil. And so commentators have suggested that perhaps the idea here is that the oil would drip down onto his shoulders and maybe onto his chest, which wouldn't necessarily fit with the idea of the edge of his robes. But yet, remember on the priest's shoulders were little stones representing the 12 tribes, and so were 12 stones on his chest. And so this, this oil of fragrance is, is descending down upon his, his outfit. So there's your first simile. It's like a fragrant oil that descends. The second simile is from the realm of dew, but it's very similar in that he's going to use the same phrase in that it's coming down. So he says, it is like the dew of Hermon. Now, if, if you do some research, Hermon in, in the northern part of the Holy Land was a very, very high mountain range. And it is famous for its dew. I even did some reading about a, 
uh, historiographer who, who went there and he said, when I woke up in the morning, the inside of my tent was drenched with dew. So it's, it, it was famous for having massive amounts of dew. And it might be because Herman, as those of you who know anything about it, it's a snow-capped peak year round. And so the, the, the cause of that dew is probably from the heat and the snow reaching one another. But Mount Zion is a pretty long distance away from Herman. It's probably a good 50 miles or more. But yet what we see here is that that dew that began up in the northern mountain range descended down into Zion. And so what is, what is God teaching us here? Well, we know that dew is refreshing and enlivening. And so perhaps here the, the, the beauty of unity is that it, like oil, it's fragrant as, as it spreads to others. And here it's, it's fruitful. Dew is, is, is something that, that waters the ground and brings forth fruit. And perhaps the idea here is that unity is something that's very fruitful. But, but at the end of the, the psalm, he, he, he's thinking about Mount Zion the very place where he has perhaps just recently purchased the, the site where they're going to build the temple. And he knows that, that Mount Zion is the place that God has chosen to dwell. And he knows that it's the place in which his covenant that God made with David would, would center around Jerusalem. And we know from other scriptures that David had some sense of an understanding of the Messiah. He knew that one of his descendants would rise and rule forever. So as he's closing this psalm, David had a conception of eternal life. We know that, for example, in Psalm 23, he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so perhaps the most fruitful thing about the gospel and about the, the, plum, the promises of God. Look at verse three, it says, for there the Lord commanded the blessing. Perhaps that's some allusion to the, to the glory of the gospel, which ultimately results in life forever. You know, it's interesting, I led a man to Christ about a year or so ago, and recently he said to me, you know, if this pandemic happened a year ago, I would have been so scared. But he said, I'm not afraid to die. And so it's interesting that somehow there's a connection here. And I can't say for sure why the Lord connects unity to his commanded blessing and the covenant of the gospel, which leads to life forever. But one of the things we noted as we've looked at all of the Psalms is that when we go through a psalm, we, we look at it in its historical context, but as we're learning how to read the Bible, we then try to step back and say, how does this point us to Christ? And how does this lead us into the New Testament as Christians, as we seek to not only celebrate the beauty of unity, but then to cultivate this unity that centers around Christ and his gospel? So at this point, we're going to move out of Psalm 133 and into some other scripture passages. And we're going to talk about, as I said, three things, the benefits of unity, 
some causes of disunity and some ways to promote unity. Now, ultimately, I want to apply these to the Christian as we focus on Christ and his gospel. But I want to say something just briefly here, and that is this, that these biblical principles that we're about to talk about are also valid in your marriage, in your parenting, in your family, in your workplace, in schooling. God's word is absolutely true. And it's interesting because there are so many people who, who are bombarding us with opinions and ideas. I just saw this week on, on The View that they, they said scientists are now telling us that there's a great value in swearing and cursing. And so that would be an example where I go, wait a minute, give me this book. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel, not of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And so let's look at what scripture says. And I, and I believe all of us can benefit from some reminders and challenges on unity. So let's begin by, by answering the question, what are some benefits of unity? And we're gonna look at some scriptures and you could take some notes here as we're working through it. You can kind of think about these things. But the first benefit of, of unity is that unity is, is, what, is what the Bible calls walking worthy of the gospel. If you were to read the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters don't have a single commandment. They all talk about the blessings that the believer experiences being called into the covenant of the gospel. But beginning in chapter four, Paul says, and, and if you'll look with me at this passage as it comes up, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, this is what it means to walk worthy of the gospel. This is what it means to respond to the gospel. And the very first thing that he calls for is unity. He says, here's how I want you to live out your Christian conversion. Verse two, with humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And we're going to come back to that idea of being diligent because there are things that we can do. But one benefit of, of, the, of the, the gospel and, and, and of having unity is that this is what makes God look good. It makes the gospel look good, which leads to the second benefit. And that is that walking worthy and, and living in Christian unity is a great witness to the world. In fact, if you look at, at this text in John 17... Jesus, in his prayer the night before he died, actually prayed for Christians to have unity. But it was very purposeful. It was for the witness of the gospel. He said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. So this is a prayer that Jesus prayed for us. He said that they all may be one. In other words, that they would experience unity. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So not only is God a triune God, but one could say he's triunified. He said that they may be in us, but here's why. So that the world may believe that you sent me. In fact, I want to recommend a book that I just finished reading. It's written by John Piper, and it's called Coronavirus and Christ. It's very, it's very brief read but it has six thoughts about the coronavirus. But one of them is this, that as 
Christians, our witness during the coronavirus can truly have an impact on the world. And so he quotes from an experience in the 300s to show how the witness of Christians can be so important to the world. He says, in 332, the Emperor Julian wanted to breathe new life into the Roman religion. And he saw Christianity as a growing threat. But he wrote in frustration to the Roman high priest of Galatia. He said, this Christian faith has been advanced through the loving service that Christians have rendered to strangers, their care for the burial of the dead. He said, as he watched these Christians living in unity, he said, it's a scandal. There's not a single who is a beggar and, and, and that godless Galilean Christians, they care not only for their poor, but they care for our poor as well. While, while many of those who belong to us Romans look in vain for the help that we should render them. So what, are, what an interesting thought that the emperor himself was struck by the, the loving unity of Christians. And that's true today. As we strive for unity, we're setting a, an opportunity for people to say, that's what I want. I want to belong to a family that gets along. There's a third benefit of unity. And, and I would simply say it this way. Within unity, the work of the Lord is most fruitful. God's going to get his work done. But disunity truly slows down and hinders the work of the Lord. So Paul said in Philippians 1.27, as he thought about the work of the Lord, you know, Christians, we are supposed to be doing two things. We're supposed to be evangelizing the lost and edifying the body of Christ, reaching and teaching. We're supposed to be making disciples. And as we do this together, it's most fruitful in unity. So Paul says in Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I remain absent, I hear, now look at this, you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul didn't just say, hey, make sure you witness to people, but he said, do this together as you join hands, as you lock arms, as you, as you have this single focus of reaching the lost. It will be most fruitful in the context of unity. But then also, even the work of building up the church is often spoken of in terms of unity. So Paul uses this great analogy of the church being one body with many members. So he says in Ephesians 4, verse 16, the whole body being fit and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. And so as we try to grow and reach lost people, and as we try to disciple people, the framework and context of getting along is going to be the place where it's most fruitful. In fact, I want to point out as a side note, this is true in just about anything, family, school, business, government, way more can get done when it's done and people are working together in unity. I was stricken once when I was reading Genesis 11, you know, the story of the Tower of Babel, but it really struck me as God was watching humanity and rebellion against him actually getting along and working together. 
He said in Genesis 11:6, Behold, they are one people, and they have the same language. In other words, they're, 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 they're in sync here. They're working together. This is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. It's just a fact that, that when people are working together, so much more is accomplished. Even the author of Ecclesiastes understood this. He said, two are better than one. They have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls and there's no one to lift him up. And so these are some of the benefits. And ultimately, the most important benefit of unity it's, is it's well-pleasing to God. It's what God wants. You see, the Christian life is not a bunch of rules like you have to do this. It's, Lord, now that I'm a Christian, how can I be pleasing to you? And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4, you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. We're learning how to walk and to please God. And truly, I can assure you from the Bible that when Christians are getting along, God is pleased. And so that's not all the benefits, but that's some of the benefits of unity. Now, let's, let's move from that and talk about some of the causes of disunity. What causes disunity? Well, there's a lot of things. I'm just going to talk about some of them, but these are very practical. So even if you're boys and girls and you're listening, you can think about your own family. Do you get in arguments with your parents or your brothers or sisters or at school or on social media? Let's think about these things. Ultimately, the source of all disunity is our sinful disposition. The Bible calls it our flesh. It's this disposition that is in rebellion against God. And, and we're all born with that. It expresses itself in a variety of ways, but we're all born with it. And, and the Bible calls these things the deeds of the flesh. This is really important for you to think about. All of us have within us this, this propensity to do things wrong. And so it ultimately manifests itself in behaviors. And one of that areas of behaviors is relational disunity. So in Galatians 5, take a look at this passage. Paul says... The deeds of the flesh, the ones that spring out of our, our corrupt disposition, are evident. And the first ones he lists are sexual sins in verse 19, immorality, impurity, sensuality. But look at how the next group have to do with relational sins or disunity. He says, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes dissensions, factions, and envying or jealousy. So where that come from? It comes from our corruption. I read a, a, an illustration just this week that I thought was interesting. Suppose you were standing next to a guy and someone bumps into him and he spills his coffee. And you said to him, hey man, why did you spill coffee? He would say, because that guy bumped me. But what if you said, no, no, no. I wasn't asking why did you spill coffee? I was asking, why did you spill coffee? And the reason you spilled coffee is because that was what was in your cup. It wasn't tea, it wasn't milk. You spilled coffee because coffee was in the cup. And when the cup got rattled, what was inside came out. And that's probably a good illustration. When disunity comes out, it's because that's what's within our hearts. We have the capacity to express Many sinful things, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. So it's, it's coming from our core. Now, once I recognize that, I begin to look for some of the specific expressions of it. So as I was thinking through scripture, 
just want to mention a few specific expressions. These are the things that are going to kill your marriage. They're going to make a terrible relationship between parents and kids. It's going to be hard to get along with your friends when you go away to college. So the, the first one is a superiority attitude. The Bible calls it pride. The Bible says, do nothing from empty conceit. Pride is, is probably the number one destroyer of unity. When people think they're better than others. So Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in contrast, with humility, regard others more important. There's a second manifestation of this, this unity killer, and that would be selfish ambition and jealousy. It's painful to think about, but all of us at times have selfish ambition. We, we want to be noticed. We want to get praise and credit from others. And so sometimes people will pursue this through power, money, but even through academics, they can consider themselves, hey, I'm smart. And so James kind of calls people out for this. Years ago, I did a series from James 3, but he says in James 3, who among you is wise and understanding? And I can imagine some people sitting out there, well, I mean, just saying, not bragging, but yeah, I'm wise and understanding. And he goes, really? Well, then here's a test. Show that you're wise and understanding by your behavior in the gentleness of wisdom. But then he says in verse 14, look at this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant. Don't lie against the truth. This is not which comes down from above. It's earthly, natural, and demonic. For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there's disorder in every evil thing. So just think about that. When people aren't getting along, is there some jealousy there? Is some selfish ambition you want to be above them? Whew, the next one's so, so convicting, but so true. I mean, we see it all the time. One of the things that causes disunity is when we seek to gratify our sinful desires. Again, going back to this idea of the corruption within us, we want what we want. And sometimes what we want, if someone gets in our way, it's not going to be pretty. And this particular, I want you to think about your marriage. Maybe you argue about money or about sex or about this or that. Or Look at James 4 verse 1. It says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, which means you desire something. You want something and you don't have it, so you commit murder. You're envious and you can't obtain something, so you fight and quarrel. And so we see there that when we, we seek to have our desires gratified, if somebody gets in our way, boy, we're not going to have unity anymore. And this, is, this explains how people would say, Oh, I love her, I love her, I love her. And then she denies him something and I hate her, I hate her. Another one that definitely, definitely causes disunity is the spreading of strife. In Proverbs chapter 6, beginning at verse 16, it says, There are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. And and the first one he lists is haughty eyes, which is pride. But the last one, he says, is one who spreads strife 
among brothers. Listen, that is a great thing to pay attention to. Often disunity is because somebody is intentionally spreading strife. And normally, spreading strife is done through sins of speech, like gossip and slander, lying, things like that. So just think about, is there some area where you may be really sort of feeding the fan or fanning the, the, the flames of disunity, or are you, are you a peacemaker? And then the last one would be sinful anger. There is such a thing as a righteous anger. The Bible says in Ephesians, be angry, but do not sin. But for the most part, sinful anger involves bitterness, that resentment, that hatred, that unwillingness to forgive. And, and God knows how many people just live with this seething anger. And, and, and many times it's a response to deep frustration. I mean, as we, as we look at, at, at what's going on in, in Minnesota right now, we, we see this great cry for justice. And for those of us who perhaps haven't experienced what, what it feels like to be in a situation like that, one can sympathize with this deep anger. But what happens is anger, if not controlled by the Holy Spirit, is going to lead to sinful rage and malice and bitterness. And so in Ephesians 4, verse 31, it says, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger and clamor be put away from you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. So we've looked at some benefits of unity. I mean, we want to grow as Christians, as a church, as families. We've looked at some causes of disunity. Ultimately, the coffee's coming out. It comes out in pride and jealousy and strife and, and sinful anger. But finally, let's talk about some, some ways to preserve unity. In other words, if, if, if David says, man, unity's beautiful. It's so precious. But he doesn't tell us here, well, how do we preserve it? But the Bible does tell us how to preserve it. So I'm going to suggest some practical ways that we can preserve unity. And you can think about these in your marriage, um, kids. You can think about your relationship with your siblings, parents and kids, maybe your loved ones, your aunts and uncles, your neighbors. Let, let's just briefly look at this. First of all, if we're going to preserve unity, we have to prayerfully depend on the spirit. Unity is not something that we can conjure up of our own gumption. Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And he goes on to describe as we're walking in submission to and keeping in step with the spirit and praying in dependence on the spirit that we're gonna see manifestations of the fruit of the spirit, which is, look what it says. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So number one, I want to encourage you to be prayerful. Say, God, help me and help our church and help my family. May the Holy Spirit produce unity. Secondly, though, we can't just pray about it. We then have to practice cultivating relational virtues. You and I have to be intentional and say, I have to be diligent to cultivate certain traits. So look at this beautiful passage in Colossians 3.12. Paul says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and dearly loved, as we consider our election and our calling and our forgiveness, Paul says, put on a heart. In other words, just like you put on your clothes, intentionally practice compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And so make it a note to literally think this week about, okay, I want to prayerfully try to be more patient. I want to prayerfully be more forgiving. I want to prayerfully be more kind. The third thing we can do to preserve unity is not just prayerfully depend on the Spirit and, and practice cultivating these virtues, but the third one is to be very purposeful in the way you communicate. Communication is such a key to unity. And so there's two things I want to talk about here. Number one, let's learn to listen better. As you hear politics and, and ideas and thoughts, don't be like Proverbs 18.2. Proverbs 18.2 says, a fool does not delight in understanding. In other words, he doesn't want to listen to other people really to hear why they believe what they believe. He says he doesn't delight in understanding. He only delights in revealing his own mind. And so if we're going to have unity, we have to understand that it's not helpful to say things like, how can you be a Christian and be a Democrat? But, but rather to, to think through and, and, and to just try to understand people's perspective. So let's try to learn to listen better. And I'm speaking to myself here. But then number two, we need to be careful as, we, as we're purposeful in our communication. Be careful what you say and how you say it. We are in a charged environment. So political views and your thoughts on whether we should be isolated or not, or when we should get back together as a church. It's really important that we're careful how we speak using terms like liberals and idiots or radical fundamentalists. They're not helpful and they're not edifying. So let's look at Ephesians 4.29. And maybe in your marriage, you're saying things that are not helpful and aren't edifying. Siblings, maybe you're saying things to your brothers or sister. They're not helpful and they're not edifying. Look at Ephesians 4.29. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. So it will grace, it'll give grace to those who hear. As we close this morning, I want you to just do a personal inventory. How are you doing when it comes to unity? You getting along with your spouse? Getting along with your siblings? Are you getting along with the other people of your church? If you're like, yeah, I love this isolation. I'm getting along great. I'm like, please stop. I've seen this happen. I've seen couples who are in such strife. They're like, ever since we separated, we're getting along. It's like, duh. Anybody can get along when they're separated. So, so let's think this through. A friend of mine once, everywhere he went, he smelled a bad smell. It was a friend of a friend. And eventually he went to the doctor and found out that someone had put a pie in his face and he had whipped cream in his nostrils. It had gone up into his sinuses. So everywhere he went, it smelled. And I want you to think, if, if wherever you go, you can't get along, is it really because you work with a bunch of idiots? Is it really because your siblings are morons or your spouse doesn't get you or the people at your church just can't quite cut it. If it smells of disunity wherever you go, the problem is probably you. And so as Christians, let's, let's pray that God will 
grow us together into a unified church. We've got a lot of work to do for the Lord. And I thank God for how many of you who are giving and serving and working. If you're just new to us now, the last thing I want to say is this, is this idea of getting along with other Christians and getting along with your spouse, that's not just something you change yourself. You can't just reform. You need to be reborn. Jesus said, we must be born again. If you truly in your soul say, I, I, I kind of sense this, I'm an angry, bitter, hard to get along with. Maybe the problem is me. God, would you forgive me? Jesus died to forgive you and his spirit will come into your heart and totally change you. The Bible says, if you come to Jesus, you will become a new creation. He will give you a new heart. The Bible says, only those who have been born of God can love. And so right now, maybe you have some questions. Maybe you wanna pray with someone. Maybe you'd like to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. In just a moment on the screen, is gonna come up an email, and I'd love to hear from you. Email me right now. One of the pastors will get back to you today. But if God's moving you and you, you feel that you want to have a relationship with Jesus and through that relationship be forgiven and learn how to love and get along. For some of you, you and your spouse need to have a talk. Maybe some apologies, some, some repentance. Kids and parents, maybe your neighbors, maybe someone from the church need to pick up that phone and, and call them and apologize. But let's ask God to fill us and pour out upon us a fresh blessing of the spirit of the unity. God bless you. Have a wonderful week, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon.